Welcome to the podcast Beyond the Triangle. I'm Amy Beth Horman, and this is episode 11, entitled Competitions, Preparing for Success. This episode is a continuation of the last episode entitled Competitions, Pros, and Cons. As usual, I'm going to give you real talk from all the perspectives, student, teacher, adjudicator, and parent. This is especially crucial in these episodes about competitions. I think having these multiple perspectives out there can really help parents reframe competitions in a more positive light. It can also help some parents understand more about their teacher's advice or competition strategies so that we are all working more efficiently toward our goals. If you're listening to this episode, my bet is you're deciding to compete this year or you're continuing on the competition circuit from years past. And while we spent a fair amount of time in the last episode going over the shaky nature of competitions and results, those who embark on a competitive calendar have every reason to retain high hopes. If not for prizes, then for concert opportunities or educational experiences. Having had a successful competitive studio on the East Coast for many years, My feeling as a teacher is that many do not put in enough time to strategize for competitions so that they can get the most out of them. So this is what we're going to be focusing on today. Things that you can do as a parent or student to fully strategize for success in auditions or competitions, beyond the practice room and all of those application forms. So let's get started. Generally, the first thing on a young artist's mind is, what piece will I present? And while picking whatever piece is most polished at the time of application deadline might seem like an easy enough answer, it is usually not the most strategic. If you want to score high in competitions this year, my first piece of advice is to spend way more time on piece selection. This might take up a bunch of your lesson time, but it will be worth it. There are simply a lot of factors that should weigh in to your decision. So how do we pick the perfect piece that will score well? Obviously, there aren't any magic answers to this question, but I get asked this a lot in my studio. There is a lot of strategizing months ahead of time. Usually before summer hits, parents will ask what they should be competing on the following year, because they want to get a head start on it while school is out. They are generally closing out the current competition calendar at this time, and sometimes they already have some ideas. This process of selection can be especially important for concerto competitions, so I'm going to center on that just to try and encourage you to think in a few different ways. Here's a short list of what I suggest you do before you pick your concerto competition piece, and then I'll elaborate a little bit. I suggest that parents research the competition or organization itself. I also advise them to read about and listen to past winners. I suggest that you research past seasons and programs to see tendencies. And I advise parents to determine the size of the orchestra. You can even research if they have a budget for the orchestra by seeing who they hire as soloists. You might be saying to yourself, hey, I don't want to buy the orchestra. I just want to enter a competition for Pete's sake. But these things could matter. And you will get better at it the more you do it. 
Let me explain how to do it and why it can matter. Let's talk about that budget for the orchestra first. If the orchestra affiliated with the concerto competition is hiring big soloists, they usually have a large budget in place. But if they are hiring up-and-coming soloists or professional musicians from their area, as fine as they might be, they might be just offering stipends, which indicates a smaller budget. Now, don't worry, because small-budget orchestras or large-budget orchestras can play very alike. The reason that this is useful to you is because if you are competing on a large-scale work or one which requires special instruments, you are asking them to do a financial and mental gymnastic to let you win. Notice I said, let you win. That's not good, right? They will be reluctant to choose you at all, no matter how brilliant you play, because you will be costing them more money than they may have allotted for. Longer rehearsals means extra fundraising. Also, they will need to hire more musicians for a larger scored orchestra, and maybe even need to find a vibraphone or something and pay extra cartage fees to get them there. It gives them extra to wrangle, So think how well you would have to play your piece to allow them to mentally jump over all of that. Let's talk about the availability of the score. If you're playing a piece with a fairly uncommon score, you might need to offer to supply it from the get-go. And to some parents, that gives them hives right off the bat. But there are teachers like me and a few others that I know who are willing to help with that. And that, I would suggest you put in an email before you even enter the concerto competition. So you might have your teacher write the concerto competition and say to them, we are willing to provide a score should my student proceed to the final round or should they be selected to play in an upcoming season. So it's not easy, but it is possible. It is certainly easier to select something you know they have done in a prior season because that suggests that they have the score or were able to afford the rental before. But you probably don't want it to have been done last season with the orchestra because their audience would be bored with that. So if you won, they would be asking if you could play something else for programming reasons. And that gives them another mental hurdle to get through. They might feel the need to vet your abilities on the replacement piece, and that's extra time for them. So now think, if there's someone else there at the competition playing a perfect Mozart concerto that is free for them to acquire score and requires an orchestra which is already chamber, thus $15,000 cheaper to produce for the winning concert, well, you might just be sunk with your larger, lesser-known concerto. I don't think it is reasonable for you to expect them to think over all of those things. Do you? These are just things that you should consider. If you're going to be truly strategic, you need to know your concertos enough to understand their size and cost to production. I only know this because I've become friends over the years with many conductors, and so we discuss things in our off time like, hey, what should we perform next season together? And then certain suggestions aren't viable because of the cost of X, Y, and Z. 
So I started taking mental notes of these things long ago. It became clear to me the difference between the cost of the Brooks Scottish Fantasy and the Mendelssohn Concerto. It actually has nothing to do with whether I like one more than the other or whether I play one better than the other. Some orchestras can't afford to produce one of them. If you are aware of the size of the orchestra, you can avoid competing on pieces which exceeds their personnel already. Some competitions are smart and they provide a list, but some don't. So a little researching will help you fit your piece to the symphony or group that you're playing for. I advise students and parents to look up prior winners just to get an idea of who they have chosen in the past. I think this offers you the chance to see how proficient or polished they were, along with the past year's repertoire winners. This is important because, again, it will point to budget allowance as well as potential preferences of the music director or orchestra as a whole. Sometimes, too, I sense that parents are not convinced that classical composers like Mozart will prize in concerto competitions, even though that is something their child shines on. If you research, you might be able to ease these concerns, because you may see Mozart or Haydn having come out on top before. Many high-level competitions actually recognize the difficulty of these classical composers and require them in the final rounds because of how exposed and difficult they are to perform polished and clean. This can ease conflicts between teachers and parents and students, too. I can't tell you how many times I've had a parent tell me when I ask how practice is going, well, so-and-so isn't quite sure that they can actually even win on this piece. Well, that doesn't really help them with staying motivated, does it? So it's important that a child believes that they can, that there is a possibility, a good possibility, that they could win, and that we're strategizing for them, valuing their time. How about looking into the orchestra's programming? If you research past seasons, you might see a trend in a favorite composer. Like I know a conductor who is a very avid Nielsen fan. You might even see a trend in periods. Listen to their YouTube videos. What does their fan base love enough that they do it every year? Does your piece somehow tie into that? If you compete on something that actually makes them think about their favorite patrons super happy in their seats or appeals directly to their music director's preferences, you might have a winner piece. They need to be able to visualize you doing this with them easily in budget and extraordinarily well while you are auditioning. The fewer hurdles, the better. Notice how we haven't chosen anything yet, but we've already done hours of research? Don't worry. You will probably try some competitions more than once, so you can save your research for later. And if you get the first prize on your first time out, You won't regret this prep time, believe me. You'll just feel smart and happy. Okay, so maybe you've done that research and you have a short list created. Next, think about which pieces on that list would bring out your best qualities and really make you shine. Not the piece you think they would be most impressed by technically, or the piece the last guy won with, But what makes you feel really confident and grounded in your own playing? I know I have certain things that just really help me shine as a player. 
and other concerti I would be fine playing, but it really isn't my thing. Make sure you know the difference. If you aren't sure, ask your teacher what they admire in your playing currently the most, and then let them help you. Now that you've narrowed it down with lots of strategy and selected your perfect piece, let's talk a bit about preparation to make sure you're giving it your best shot. First and foremost, talk to your teacher. They know you're playing inside and out, and they should be able to offer you specific advice as to how to practice your competition piece or pieces so that you can present yourself at your full potential. Like I said in our prior episode about your relationship with your private teacher, even if you don't understand exactly all the whys behind doing what they advise, do it out of pure trust and faith that they have been down this road many times before. You don't have to have a conceptual understanding of the practice techniques assigned to encourage your child to do them. I know it's awkward to come around the corner into the practice room and say things like, hey there, just checking in to see if you're going over that thumb position thing in the last section of your piece. I don't really understand it, but it seemed pretty important to your teacher. But you can do it. Know how to reference it, not how to assistant teach it. And you're doing just fine. Some parents get frozen by this, I think, because they remember well when they fully understood the instructions and could be in in on practice and help implement things. But to be fully supportive and useful to your child in pre-college training, you will need to help remind and reinforce practice techniques you understand very little about and trust your child to know if they are being done correctly. Sometimes those obtuse items on the practice list become the most important to technical breakthroughs. So don't skip anything on that practice list as you are doing competition preparation. So we've talked about some things that you should do to strategize. Let's talk now about how to avoid some other pitfalls. Here are some common mistakes I see parents making that I know you can avoid to help score higher in competitions. I have made this list thinking of myself as both a teacher and a judge, so I'm using multiple perspectives. Don't pick pieces that are too hard. I don't believe that harder is always better in concerto competitions. Sometimes I think it can really sink you. Conductors are always wary of playing with young soloists, even when they love them. They support young artists, of course, but it's scary to think of something going awry, and especially with someone young and impressionable. They want things to go beautifully so that they can support the young artists on stage and help empower them with a wonderful experience. But they know that young soloists are new at this, so they might be a bit apprehensive about taking on an incredibly large or difficult work especially if it looks like you're struggling. Along those lines, if there are live finals with orchestra and you attend, take note if something was very hard to put together. That person probably didn't win, and you shouldn't come in the following year and try and convince them to give it another shot. The conductor and the orchestra might just be scared to choose you if the whole ship almost sunk over that piece the last time. 
As solid as you might be, you have to realize conductors are only human, and some solo pieces are just harder than others to put together for ensemble. With tight timing and rehearsals, they don't want your experience with them to be a struggle. And they certainly don't want the live performance to be anything less than inspiring. Always remember that they have patrons and donors attending these events who are donating for the next year, and they depend on them. Try to avoid picking the piece that won in the year prior. It's normal to idolize or look up to prior winners from years past, but this can really backfire. They may still have the last winner's version in their head and really love it. So if you're putting your interpretation up against it, this could be a hurdle. Even if you believe your version is better, they might disagree, and you're giving them something very tangible to compare you to, which was obviously already favored by them. You can't avoid playing concerti that others will choose, so you will already likely be up against multiple versions of your concerto. That's hard enough. Also, I believe it is human nature for some judges or conductors to want to hear something different, and frequently they want to perform the piece that wins in the competition, not offer you to switch your piece later. So does it make sense to try and suggest to them that their next young artist concert should present the very same concerto as last year? Their audiences probably would be bored by that. Offer them something different if you can, so that they can have a fresh program to offer their ticket holders. Touching on something that we spoke about earlier, another pitfall that I see parents falling into is picking a piece for concerto competitions that is too expensive to produce, when you could pick something else that fits the bill better. As I said before, I've seen parents many times off over get very attached to their children competing on pieces. They get attached to them because of how they sound, but they're expensive to produce or they don't fit the size of the orchestra. This is so important, I'm willing to state it twice. I have seen many lose who should have won by their playing alone, but they gave too many hurdles for the jury to jump over. Think about all the possible choices in your repertoire, even if it means review, and don't make the uninformed mistake of proposing, say, the Lalo Symphony Espanol to a chamber orchestra or to a community orchestra that works on a tight budget. It's a large-scale work which requires more rehearsal because of the sheer volume of the score having five movements. You'll need more people in the orchestra, so that's an extra staffing cost to them. Instead, try picking something that the orchestra played with someone a few seasons ago. They will still have this in their library, and they probably rehearsed hard for it if the person sold a full house worth of tickets. Given the fact that you will be on limited rehearsal, this sets you up nicely if you win to have a successful performance playing something they have had success with before and is already in their fingers and in their repertoire. When I played solo with the National Symphony the second time, I did the Lalo Symphony Espanol, and it still sticks in my memory. I had one rehearsal, which was the day of, and this is standard procedure for A orchestras. But in that rehearsal, they had a lot of trouble. There were mistakes, there were counting errors. I was really caught off guard, so much so that I called my teacher to the scene backstage to discuss it with him. 
Turns out that they hadn't played Lalo Symphony Espanol in several seasons. So when I asked an orchestra member why there was so much to work on in the rehearsal and what might be wrong, he responded rather curtly to me, maybe you should have picked something that we had more readily in our repertoire. We haven't played this in seven years. They only had the morning to look over it. Luckily for me, it was the National Symphony. By that night, it was fine, but it didn't help my nerves any. Another problem that I see frequently with young artists is that they forget to prepare the full concerto seriously. Many times I think parents and students aren't super willing to complete their concerti when they're learning them initially, and then they're met with the requirement from a competition asking for the full work. They only really learned the first movement when they approached it. But with the prospect of a great competition, they'll now go back and review the first movement and quickly attempt to add the other movements. As a teacher, I'm a big fan of learning full works as you encounter them in your training. There are a few exceptions I make for concerti where the third movement is far more difficult than the first, for example. But mostly, I start kids on, on pieces that I know that they can finish in full within the year. And yes, sometimes it takes a year of study to complete a major concerto. If you have a full concerto or two under your belt and you have performed all three movements successfully, both individually and also presented as a whole work, you are in a much better position to win a concerto competition. Judges look for full concerti and they will likely skip you around, which is incredibly difficult as a way of sampling your knowledge of the entire concerto. So you will need to know every page. Another thing that I encounter a lot as a judge is that students seem to be under-rehearsed with their collaborative pianists. If you are a parent who wants to have their child compete, you need to plan on multiple rehearsals with piano and ideally in front of your teacher. The standard as I see it for advanced training is to have a pianist present at lessons for as much as possible. This is something that we're going to be talking about in my next episode. While this seems daunting to some, it's simply necessary so that a child understands the ensemble and the balance from the full score. Kids who have been given the opportunity to prepare in this way sound far different than those who don't. It is much more poised and polished And even with piano reductions in place, it can sound remarkably like the original work when prepared and coached correctly. This is a great segue to my next point. Another pitfall that I see parents falling into frequently is allowing the collaborative pianist to follow them against the original score. This is sometimes the fault of the teacher, unfortunately, in my opinion, but I have also had many times where parents have pushed back on me in lessons and it has become a real obstacle to prizing in competitions. All young artists should be studying their full score to understand who they are playing with in their solo and who they're leading at key junctures. They might have a melody shared with the cello section or they might be arpeggiating an accompaniment to a wind player. Maybe they have rhythmic unison with an entire violin section All of these things require them to play in a certain way with the piano, too. 
The pianist shouldn't be banging out a fortissimo like a piano concerto if they're actually representing an oboe part. But they may not know the score. They can't possibly know all of the concerto scores. So that should be a teacher stepping in and asking them to play more like that of one member of the orchestra in the wind section. An oboe simply cannot play that loudly in an orchestra. This matters because it doesn't reflect the score, and it will force the soloist to play at a volume which is not in keeping with what they would be expected to do with orchestra. Suddenly, what they're playing doesn't really sound like the concerto, and the jury will notice this, maybe even be put off by it. But more importantly, if they do it correctly, and the balance is correct between them and the piano reflecting the actual full score and the instruments that should be represented in the piano reduction, it will sound like the original composition in the jury's ears, and this can make a lasting impression. I use full score at every lesson in coaching concerti, and I think this is why my studio's track record became fairly high in competitions. I have experience performing all of the major violin concerti over many years, and I know where there are tricky ensemble parts that eat up rehearsal time with orchestras. I coach my students to be incredibly clear and rhythmic and aware in those danger spots. These are certainly not spots where they can exhibit artistic freedom, even if they like the way they sound when they do so. The fact is, you could look at any conductor's score and you would see circles and red marks and arrows all over these sections from multiple experiences they've had with different soloists. They've had to harness the whole orchestra to avoid disaster. Sometimes parents have tried to argue that their kid loves to play it this way, though, and really prefers to be free. Won't they score higher? I advise them that this is a surefire way to lose a concerto competition because there's almost always a conductor on there in the jury, and you will scare them to death. No conductor enjoys telling a talented kid, hey, that's beautiful, but you need to lose all of that and show me the beat or we'll all crash. So you need to study the score and have adequate rehearsals with piano so that you can learn where you can take liberties and where you need to tighten the reins. Sometimes you'll be leading the way, and sometimes you'll be responding to the pianist pretending to be the full orchestra in a strict rhythm. In this same train of thought, sometimes as a judge, I've found that young artists' tempi are very unsteady, so we need to be especially careful with this in practice. My old teacher, Jody Gatwood, had us all able to play all of our concertos metronomically within four notches in either direction. This is because the orchestra can sway in tempo slightly, like a huge ship. You might not have the power to steer them in tempo quick enough, but you will still need to play beautifully. You're going to want to know your tempo with a specific number to give to your collaborative pianist or to a conductor later on. It needs to be rock solid. If you have sections which take different tempos, which most movements do, you need to know every tempo and you need to stick to it. Certainly, if you have a repeated theme or recapitulation, it needs to mirror back in tempo exactly. Anything less, and you will lose points in competition. 
This is very easy to test at home. Get that metronome out. As soon as you have the recap, stop and test your tempo. After your run-throughs, do the same. It'll be ringing in your ears. Get that metronome and see if it's the exact tempo that you need it to be. This next pitfall I've experienced both as a judge, a teacher, and a soloist myself. You have to make sure that you're prepared to deal with the stamina necessary to play the entire concerto, and also the stamina necessary to be jumped all around. I had a lot of trouble with this one, honestly, as a teen competing. I was prone to not doing my full run-throughs and instead just going over isolated sections or maybe full movements. I waited too long in the preparatory progress to do full concerto run-throughs and then was caught off guard by how exhausting it was. It takes incredible stamina and focus to play a large concerto, and the major concerti can run 45 minutes in length. The first movement of the Tchaikovsky alone, I think, is 19 pages. So schedule mock run-throughs of the entire work. I do this for 14 days prior to every concerto performance. It is exhausting. There are nights I am not in the mood, or the kids are hanging on me, or I have a headache, or I want to go out with friends, but I do the run-through. I set up a recording device, play the entire thing, sit down and listen, and take critical notes for the next day. I might have a glass of wine, since I'm an adult, and then I go to sleep. This builds my stamina and focus, and it directs me as to what I should practice the following day. Sometimes I'm quite surprised at what sections sag in energy or accuracy, and it only happens that way in full run-throughs. So trust me, I would never know to practice those things or firm them up otherwise. This is why it is so important to do run-throughs and work on having the stamina necessary to play the entire concerto. The only thing harder than memorizing and playing an entire concerto is being able to jump successfully and in tempo with stylistic accuracy from section to section and sometimes even from movement to movement. This feels crazy on stage, believe me. And in front of judges, it is so hard. So you need to practice this with your teachers or at home. Ask your teacher for common spots where they think judges might start you. Chances are they've been a judge, so they know where they would ask another student to jump. They have experience with this. I can very confidently predict what jumps a jury will ask you to do to sample a large concerto. I might be wrong, but usually I'm not because I've just gone through it so many years now. Once your teacher advises you on this, you can mark things in your score and a parent can do a mock jumping audition very easily at home. It would look like this. A parent might say, please start from letter A. And then you would play it. Thank you. Would you please now skip to the second movement and begin at letter C? Thank you. Please proceed to the cadenza of the last movement and play through to the end of the work. Thank you. It's simple to do this. It might also be useful for students to understand certain terms like the development or the recapitulation of a theme. This will help them so that they don't get nervous in the middle of jumping around with the judges due to confusion. Okay, here's my last pitfall. 
A lot of students forget about projecting musical ideas or interpretations for large-scale halls. A very common problem I see with students doing concerto competition is the lack of projection. This isn't about exerting sheer force on an instrument or just playing loud. Sometimes it has to do with projecting a musical idea large enough for a big hall. Other times, it's allowing a pause to be longer and spacing things in a cadenza so that the acoustics can work for you in a large space. So whereas in a smaller hall, you can have a small space between large chords, you might need to insert more space in a larger hall, or the chords will bleed into one another and produce dissonance you don't want. This is an excellent reason to research ahead of time the space where a competition will be held. A small church or rehearsal room can be a very different acoustic space than a concert hall. You can't expect kids to make adjustments in spacing on the scene, so they will need to do this weeks ahead so that they can adjust things if necessary. Even pianissimo dynamics need to be produced in a way which is able to project in a large hall. This might involve a revamp on their posture or sounding point for a young violinist. If a competitor is playing beautifully but I'm having trouble hearing certain sections with a pianist accompanying, I would never choose them to play with an orchestra if I was the judge. I always warn my students who perform with orchestra that it is instantly a lot harder to be heard and to get your musical point across. I coach them through it in the rehearsals with orchestra, but they always tell me later how much harder it was than they expected. This is because I think it is quite impossible for them to predict this if they've never tried it before. So study that score and know whether your fortissimo is having to battle out an entire horn section or if it is just against a few of the winds. Know if your solo line will have to pop out of a full string section in similar or unison bowings. This will require specific technique so that your sound sparks out like a laser above theirs. A pianissimo with a fuller score backing it up can be achieved very differently than one which is barely accompanied or just being accompanied by pizzicato. But you'll need to study that score to know which one it is. So what from all of this about concerto competitions can we apply to other competitions or auditions? Most solo competitions for classical music will have the option of repertoire being from a solo concerto or a piece scored for solo and orchestra. If you're choosing from this category, make sure you follow some of the advice I gave about adequate prep with piano, understanding the full score, and not picking a piece too hard for you to present beautifully. And whether you are presenting unaccompanied literature or sonatas or show pieces, my advice will always be to confer with your teacher about what you feel presents your talents best. Often, we might prefer pieces or styles that don't actually represent us as musicians, and I don't think that people consider this enough. Your teacher will have a very informed view on what you're able to compete on the most successfully. It's rare that you shouldn't take this advice to heart. Some styles that you love might still be in development with your technique, while others are far more established and ready to perform. Sometimes review is the best option so that you can really shine. A teacher will know more about the history of a competition and will be using this knowledge to your advantage. 
if you're doing multiple competitions this year, spanning from recital repertoire to concerto literature, you should consider sitting down with your teacher and a calendar. This will help you plan how to prepare multiple pieces during the competitive season with small recital appearances, masterclass opportunities, or even outreach concerts you arrange yourself. It can also help you start to line up pianists and see potential conflicts in your family calendar that you'll need to work around. As we near the end of the podcast, let's talk a little bit about how to appear before the judges. I think that this can affect your score more than some realize, so it's definitely worth discussing. Stage deportment is something that is learned over time, of course, but certain standard things need to be taught consistently and gone over at home. Coming out on stage and presenting yourself to a panel of judges is a stretch of time that is incredibly important to your score. If a student walks too slowly and when spoken to barely responds, it sets a certain vibe which is one of nervousness or uncertainty. If a child walks confidently with a nice stride across the stage and smiles at judges, we will instantly relax and look forward to their playing. Kids will get better about this as they compete more often, but we need to start talking to them about it now. How they walk out and also how they return backstage is being scrutinized. It's also being scrutinized if they're able to speak clearly from the stage. If you have access to a stage at your conservatory or music school, I would practice this. No actual playing, but all of the motions around the playing with your instrument in hand. It is normal for students to be nervous walking out to compete, but the fact is, if they walk briskly and smile, they actually can trick their body into relaxing and being more confident. There's tons of data on this. Smiling has an amazing turnaround effect on our nerves. We even have a name for it at our house. I call it the Ava Sparkler. I want to see that smile so that even if she's nervous, she is conveying that she's excited to play and perform and has something special to share. It's possible to have all of these feelings at once, but you can be strategic in how you enter in the audition, both for the judges and also for your body. The other thing about presentation is how you choose to dress for competition. Never be afraid to ask what their dress code should be. Also, ask competition coordinators about the space. You might do well to wear a full-length gown in the final round if it's a large hall, but it could be garish in a small conference room. Knowing your space can help you dress appropriately and in a way that doesn't distract from the music. In general, I advise students to be dressed for large stage in a jewel tone or vibrant colors because it does look beautiful on stage. But I also counsel them to avoid distracting or large accessories like brightly jeweled bands or earrings. First of all, these things can buzz on the violin, which sounds awful. But also, they're just distracting to the eye. My own teacher in Paris told us to pull our hair back and away from the face at every lesson because he was distracted by us having to arrange our hair constantly away from the violin and seeing it get caught under the shoulder rest. He liked also seeing the emotion on our faces and was checking for tension. Just keep things beautiful and simple 
and make sure you've done mock performances so that you know your clothes fit in a way which is comfortable and not restricting. And here's the real talk as a judge. If I'm judging and I see a kid in street clothes or sneakers, I'm not a happy judge. This tells me that you did not prioritize this experience, and it is disrespectful, in my opinion, to the whole process. This goes for any audition, if you ask me. And furthermore, I believe kids focus and present differently when they are dressed for success. This is a special exchange between performer and audience. And when you dress appropriately, you are signaling that for everyone, that you have something valuable to share and that you feel strongly about it. As a parent of an active performer, I know what she's wearing a week in advance and I steam it and set it out along with shoes and whatever she's wearing in her hair. I do this because I know that it is something that we don't need to be thinking about in that last crucial week of run-throughs and practice. So often there are extra things that pop up in that last week. And it's best if the kids are kept really grounded and calm while they finish their preparation. Ava helps me pick all of the things that she's going to wear, and she enjoys that process of visualizing herself performing. I am a big believer in the power of visualization. If you can see yourself all week in your mind's eye performing something well, it does make a difference in the end. My last piece of advice today are kind of bookend pieces of advice, and that is to arrange the day in a way that will allow you to succeed, and then to take the time to dialogue after the event about how you might be able to do better next time. So if you listen to my prior episodes on sleep, nutrition, and schedule, there's a lot of advice there on how you can make sure that you're rested, nourished, and have a fresh focus for your big day. Some parents will forget to allow that day to be free and schedule other things around the competition for family, or just other activities that they don't wish to cancel. My feeling is that you owe it to yourself and your young artist to free up the day for them to feel focused and confident. I've made this mistake too. Sometimes I just think that we can have a certain amount going on in the day and still be fine. In addition to keeping the day fairly clear, I certainly would keep the day also low-key and avoid any stress or strenuous physical activity. One of the best pieces of advice I ever got from my teacher is kind of random, but he told me never to buy a manual transmission car if I was going to be driving to my own concerts. It uses your wrist and wears it out, especially in stop-and-go traffic so you would drive to your concert and arrive with your wrist shot. I would have never thought of this, but once he told me, I started thinking about not overdoing it in other ways that used my wrists and hands. I know most of you are driving your kids to competition, but it seemed illustrative to share this with you because I wouldn't have thought of it without him. It's surprisingly easy to overexert the very muscles you need to perform if you're not being mindful. Even with mundane activities, this can happen. It makes a huge difference to think about this, and that also includes not over-practicing the day of a concert or competition. 
To give you an idea, I also now don't do things like pick up full milk jugs, lift grocery bags, pick up cranky toddlers who can twist my arm, or walk my giant dog who occasionally falls in love with a squirrel and takes me for a ride. Any one of those things can pull something in my hand, and particularly if I've been practicing an awful lot in the days prior. Then, once your big day is over, I want to advise people to take a moment to review what you think that you did work that worked well so that you can do it again, and also think about what you could do better for the next time to help create a more seamless day. We just did this as a family a few times this month, and we made a decision to carry a rolling tote for snacks and extra clothes to ease travel. And we also made a decision to cut down practice that day a little farther, even if she's wanting to do it. It turns out that Ava wants to warm up a little longer than is really best for her, so I need to take the lead a little bit more. I'd like to suggest that parents have that post-event conversation, both with their child, to see what they think could be done better, because frequently they have some really valuable insights. And then also to have a separate conversation with your partner or your spouse, because in certain cases, it might be okay for you to make some decisions without your child present, like the thing about Ava's warm-up time. I just need to take the lead a little bit more, but it isn't something that I need to necessarily have okayed by her. I hope that today's episode gave you some new things to consider about preparing for your competitions. I know that by sharing these things with parents that I'm opening up a dialogue about judging and teaching and performing. My intent is to help you understand different strategies so that you can take the lead and so that you can have better competition experiences. It might even explain some of the decisions that you're already seeing your teacher make on your behalf. When framed appropriately, I think competitions and auditions can be a wonderful component to any young artist's training. Stay tuned for the next podcast, which will deal with the important relationship you have with your collaborative pianists and chamber partners. This will be part of our relationship series. So often, I see these entities overlooked or underestimated in how we build our relationships during training. The fact is, you will generally be making music with other people for the duration of your musical career, not just playing unaccompanied. So these relationships deserve priority and care past their role in private lessons or special performances. When we prioritize chamber music and quality time with a collaborative pianist, we're giving kids a huge leg up in their training, and I can't wait to talk to you about it. Did you know that leading institutions of music have collaborative pianists more in the private lesson than not? If this isn't happening already in your training, I'm going to talk about how to implement it in your child's education independently, so that you can reap the benefits that other young artists are getting already. And if you're a parent that often wonders what the importance of chamber music is in your child's music education, this next episode is definitely for you. Don't miss a beat. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Podbean.
If you have a question or a topic you would like to discuss on Beyond the Triangle, my ears are wide open. Write me at beyondthetrianglepodcast at gmail.com and let's connect.